autonomy is lost its power at universities too and academics are exposed to right violations due to their political views, sexual, ethnic and religious identities. Academics define their situation as culture of fear, climate of fear, fear regime, atmosphere of fear, empire of fear, wave of fear during the state of emergency. So maybe this is the most, you know, easy way to depict it. Fear. Welcome to Skas Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and in this and this is another episode in our series about diversity. And this time I have the great pleasure to talk to Inan Östermetashta, who is the Barbara Klein Fellow at SCAS right now. And broadly, her research focuses on political campaigns and media, and we will talk a lot more about that and also her personal experience in history in Turkey in this episode. Welcome to SCAS Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Yeah, of course. Thank you for inviting me here. Well, I'm a media studies and communication researcher from Turkey. I received my PhD in 2013 from Ankara University, writing my thesis on the rhetoric of radical left movements in Turkey in the 70s. But my main research areas are, as you mentioned a little bit, rhetoric and political communication. During and after my PhD, I have taken part in several research projects on the electoral speeches of political leaders and their perception of democracy and the increasing religionization of politics in Turkey. I also worked on political debates on Syrian immigration, radical media and resistance, and state of academic freedoms in current Turkey. Yes, yeah, so now you've already summarized a little bit your research, what your research is about. We will talk a lot more about this, but when I prepared this interview, I just read a bit about your personal story, and I think this would be very interesting for our listeners and also for me to know a little bit more. So you are from Turkey, and in 2017 you were dismissed from your position at Ankara University for joining a petition entitled We Will Not Be Party of This Crime. What happened there? Well... I'm one of the peace academics from Turkey. But what does it mean being a peace academic? Well, in January 2016, I signed a petition which is written by an initiative called Academics for Peace from Turkey. The petition called the Turkish government to stop the ongoing armed conflict in southeastern Turkey immediately and find a peaceful solution to Turkey's long-standing Kurdish problem. But I, I think I also should mention a little bit about the background of the petition. So there was deadly armed clashes and armed operations in a number of towns and residential areas throughout the southeastern provinces of Turkey during the summer and autumn of 2015. According to the reports of both Human Rights Foundation of Turkey and the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, during these operations there were excessive use of force, killings and forced disappearances, torture, destruction of housing and cultural heritage, incitement to hatred, prevention of access to emergency medical services care, food, water, livelihoods, violence against women, and severe curtailment of the right to freedom of opinion and expression, as well as political participation. So the petition which I signed was a reaction to all these human rights violations. Nearly, not nearly, exactly 2,210 academics signed the petition both from Turkey and all around the world. After the petition was declared to public, We as peace academics faced with a lynch campaign. <laughs> It was like a long-term process of oppression aiming to silence, intimidate, discredit, and dismiss us 
accompanied by the guidance of the president and the government, the cooperation of university administrators, the vigilance of prosecutors and law enforcement, black propaganda in the press and social media, and finally, the threats and harassments of racist, aggressive groups, unfortunately. Even one mafia leader threatened us by saying that they will have bath in your blood. As a result, some of our you know, signatories were detained and arrested. A good many of us were expelled from our academic positions. More than 400 of us dismissed from public service at all. Many were put on trial with the accusation of engaging in terrorist propaganda and sentenced to prison terms ranging from 15 months to 36 months. Finally, in August 2019, General Assembly of the Constitutional Court of Turkey concluded that our freedom of expression was violated and acquitted us. Yeah, it's a long story, but you can find a more detailed report about our case both in the website of Academics for Peace and in the reports of Scholars at Risk Foundation. In this context, uh, me and my husband, who was also a petitioner, were both dismissed from our positions at Ankara University with a degree of state of emergency. In the decrees where our names were listed, we were accused of having membership of affiliation link or connection with terrorist organizations or structures just signing a petition. So we were stigmatized as traitors of state and people with relations to terrorist organizations. But I may say that uh, this dismissal was not just an ordinary dismissal from a job, but a dismissal from all kinds of public service. Suddenly, we lost our jobs and banned from working at any public service, including private universities and other education institutions. As the fact that our being dismissed from public service was also registered to social security system with a specific code, finding a formal paid employment was almost impossible for us because employers were afraid of hiring dismissed civil service with the fear of being investigated. So we couldn't leave the country either because our passports were cancelled. As a result, like some of our dismissed colleagues, we missed our postdocs, which was supposed to be in Germany. We were not able to apply for any kind of fellowship or position abroad because of our passport problem. Our ongoing research projects funded by public sources were cancelled too. So for four years, we were like trapped in Turkey, not being allowed to go abroad, but not being allowed to do our job in our country either. During these three years, I worked at short-term international projects. We, as dismissed peace academics, we organized solidarity academies in different cities and tried to continue our academic works together in solidarity with our trade union, Atomsan, and other civil in initiatives. So finally, last year, following a change in the law, we had the opportunity to make passport applications. After three months of investigation on me, I finally could get my passport last March. And now I'm a fellow at Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study and in front of you. <laughs> I'm happy you got to this happy end, but it sounds like a very rough time for you personally. Yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine not being able to do anything and being trapped in that way in, in your own country. And now let's first talk a little bit about the SCAS, yeah. just to invite the listener to, to this environment. So how does this, being here now, doing your research here, how does this enable and strengthen your research? First of all, being at SCAS made my research possible. Yeah, it would be very difficult to continue my academic work without any funding in Turkey. So this is the first thing. But apart from this, SICAS is a very special institution. It says that it is devoted to provide optimal research conditions for curiosity-driven research at, at the website. And it does it. It provides it. So 
It's a free, multicultural, and multidisciplinary scientific atmosphere where scientists from all over the world do their own projects, but share both their results and ideas in a daily basis work environment. So it's a great place for a scientist to do his or her job freely, but also have opportunity to face with different perspectives from different disciplinaries and from different worlds. Being here is really opened my mind in different ways. And it's really important for a scientist, I think. So I stumbled a little bit on Barbara Klein, your Barbara Klein fellow. Who was she? Actually, I'm really honored of being a Barbara Klein fellow, being a fellow of such kind of great women, great, powerful, full of energy, women respecting diversity, trying to bond academics from different parts of Scandinavia to do research together and doing in a critical perspective. So she was a professor of ethnology and appointed director of the Swedish Collegium of Advanced Study in 1996. She held that position until her death. And, you know, she, she opened the way we look at the world and our daily lives with her studies on oral narration, rituals, expressive culture, often in multi-ethnic settings. So, again, it's an honor of being a fellow of Barbara Klein. I'm lucky. <laughs> You're here to carry out your research on the state of media in the post-truth area and under conditions of rising authorianism. So can you tell us a little bit more about your research? So now we can get a little bit more into the details. Yes, this time I'm just both curious and thinking about the current state of media in Turkey. So it's also a kind of a part of political communication. So. Maybe I should also give a brief context about what's going on in media sphere in Turkey. Yeah, you know, as we can observe in recent recent years, there is a global regression from democracy, unfortunately, all around the world. And one mode of this regression is rising authoritarianism, which exposes itself with the weakening institutions, the erosion of rule of law and unruly powerful leaders who had initially come to power through ballot box. This authoritarian turn coincides with what is called as post-truth era and post-truth politics, in which, according to Oxford Dictionary, objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So it's an era of common sense of politics, which begins when events seems to speak for themselves without the need for any fact-based interrogation. My research aims to look at Turkey in light of these debates on authoritarianism and postured politics and focus on the policy legitimization by the media. It can be said that under justice and development party governments and newly accepted hyper-presidential system in Turkey, a presidential system with an exalted presidency and weak checks and balances, Turkey has become more and more an authoritarian regime where elections are no longer fair, civil liberties are being systematically violated, and the playing field is highly skewed in favor of the ruling party. Media, both conventional and social media, play a critical role in the maintenance of this regime, I think. They are strictly controlled and used as a propaganda apparatus by the government and President Erdogan. Aside from public source broadcaster TRT, which is directly controlled by the government, the owners of the media in the top 10 list have close relations with the government. According to the International Press Institute by 2019, 95% of the media landscape is controlled directly by the government in Turkey. So other media stations, which includes that only 5%, percent, 
are controlled and restricted with different instruments, including monetary fines, law cases, media blackouts, or not giving state tenders to the owners of this media. Well, social media is also closely monitored. Turkey periodically orders internet service provides to block access to social media sites by slowing traffic. The Turkish government blocked, for example, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube several times. Wikipedia even was blocked for two years. And recently, <laughs> a new legislation was passed which extends government's power of control over social media content. This legislation demands social media fl- platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, even Spotify to open offices in Turkey to respond to demands of government or individuals to block or remove some you know, so-called offensive contents. Apart from pressures on social media platforms, individual users are also under great pressure. So that's an ordinary news that people are being detained or arrested for their social media posts in Turkey, unfortunately. Media workers and journalists are also under great pressure, as giving some numbers, according to Turkish Journalists Union. 74 journalists and media workers are in prison currently. And the press cards of hundreds of journalists have been cancelled in the last three years. With these threats against journalists, investigative journalism is in danger of extinction. Freedom of expression is in jeopardy, especially after the coup attempt of 2016. And according to Reporters Without Borders, World Press Freedom Index, Turkey ran, ranks, unfortunately, near to the end, you know, 157 out of 180 countries. So, you know, as a result, the flow of information is not free. Misinformation and disinformation is very common in media, especially those are close to the government. Turkish broadcast news media seems to be a propaganda arm of government. They manipulate the reality and offer a new way of argumentation that relies on lies, fallacies, and manipulation of emotions, which is called nowadays as postural politics. So taking into consideration this situation, my research questions how government-controlled media sets the agenda, how it explains, justifies, and legitimizes governmental policies, and how it manipulates the citizenry emotions. It's both uh, very interesting, also very scary. And I wonder how, as a citizen, where do you get information? Or is it even possible to get reliable information? Luckily, we still have that 5%. And social media is really important and crucial for us. And some media platforms which continue their job on internet. We have such internet-based newspapers and some very small media companies which also uh, do their job through internet and we have two or three at most national tv channels that may in a way make some you know opposition or more free journalism but under those circumstances it must also be very hard to validate the information i mean even if it's from one of the five percent sources um I would imagine that I would never be really sure that what I've just read is actually the true picture or as close to true as you can get. Yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. Because, you know, these more free media platforms, you know, as we can say like that, are also very different from each other. Some of them are highly partisan, so also have a very strong perspective, political perspective. But generally, they do not have enough news sources. They cannot reach to politicians because they are totally dismissed from any kind of political public relation or public releases. So it's really difficult both for journalists and for citizens to reach the news. So what role should universities and academics play for democracy and diversity? Yes, I think the um, 
Both the media and universities are you know, very crucial in finding the truth, producing knowledge and spreading it, of course, with different aims, scopes and audience. Especially science, I think, is powered by critical mind, unrestricted criticism and questioning. This is more significant for social sciences and humanities, which are dealing with already different aspects of societies, power relations and human beings. I think the very duty of both the media and universities under rising authoritarianism and postured politics is insisting on facts, democratic values and peaceful criticism. So what is then the role of media in this? Yeah, as one of the main democratic duty of the media is to provide information for society, I think under current conditions of rising authoritarianism and postured politics, Especially liberal media institutions, I think, should consider their news values. We know that these values are more event-oriented, more related on political or social elites, and more related on conflicts, rising tensions and negativities. But looking through this kind of news-making, politics look like a horse riding between political elites than a consideration of people with its most diversity and even conflicted interests on their lives and futures. So I think media institutions should turn their emergency mode on, as Jay Rosen offers for United States. What he offered and partly expected by media in the USA was to change the perspective of newsmaking to a more socially responsible way. Specifically, not giving coverage of clear lies whenever it comes from, even from the president of the USA. This was, you know, in a way of putting some distance with politicians as news source, as usually expected to be. We also witnessed a new way of news writing, which is called truth sandwich. As Jay Rosen explains it, some lies and facts of disinformation are too important to be ignored. So repeating them in news accounts only helps them spread. So what to do? Positioning the troublesome claim between true statements is much better, according to him, like a sandwich. So, well, of course, these examples are from USA and then they are more valuable for the context of United States. But what is important for me in these examples is that there is always different and more democratic ways of reporting. So media institutions should reconsider their democratic roles in the very contexts they serve and start to discuss alternative ways of newsmaking. There are already different perspectives to journalism like citizen journalism, peace journalism, or human rights journalism. And I think democratic societies should claim and consider these or other more democratic ways of news making. So what about universities? <laughs> yeah, they are in a very fragile position all around the world as the neoliberal policies on universities resulted with the precarization of academics, making them more vulnerable against the demands of research funders and governments, and besides, rising authoritarian and populist politicians spread an anti-intellectualism in the even democratic Western societies. So I think it's really an important thing to be more organized in unions and being in solidarity with each other. What can Swedish and other European universities do to support academics and the academic freedom in Turkey, and also more in general? Yeah, thank you for asking this question. You know, according to my personal experience as a dismissed peace academic, both national and international solidarity is very crucial for human rights activists, journalists, or academics under authoritarian regimes. We are in a global world, and I think that governments are still fragile and open to international democratic pressures and demands. So we as academics should be more aware of each other and raise voice against assault to academic freedom wherever it occurs. Being in solidarity with each other, using our institutions, trade unions, societies and initiatives are very important, I think.
And, you know, in the Scholars at Risk Foundation's November 2020 Academic Freedom Report, there is a call to action list which you where you know you can find insightful advices and ways of solidarity with scholars at risk throughout the world. I really advise our listeners to check that report. But more specifically, as for Turkey's case, providing temporary positions for scholars at risk from Turkey has been a very important form of support in recent years for us. Besides, Establishing one-to-one partnership with local initiatives of Turkey's dismissed peace academics would also be a way of solidarity. Actually, according to Human Rights Foundation of Turkey, which summarizes the situation in Turkey in Scholars at Risk's latest report, developing joint research and teaching programs with Turkey's solidarity academies providing online teaching opportunities for dismissed scholars who continue to reside in Turkey, creating honorary affiliations for a limited number of dismissed scholars and granting them access to online scientific resources, and providing academic mentorship and free access to online language courses to support graduate students directly affected by the academic crackdown in Turkey would be also some ways of taking action against attacks on academic freedoms in Turkey. I think these are really valuable advices. Yes, thank you very much for that. In this report, the call to action, they split it up into different sections, what can be done internationally, state, higher education association and societies, and also on an individual level, the civil society and the public, what you can do to support uh, academics who experience the loss of academic freedom. I especially appreciate these offers because they are coming from the real experience of scholars at risk all around the world. So we should listen and check for these advices, I think. We should listen to people like you who have experienced it and study this also, then ask ourselves what can we do to contribute. So you are studying this post-truth politics and the authoritarian government which repressed media and universities. And we have heard a little bit of the consequences. You can't rely on information, but is there anything more, um, especially on, on the universities and life of academics? What happens? Let's start again with the state of media. I think it will make the picture more clearer, you know, normatively. The media is supposed to have three specific democratic functions, one of which is the providing a flow of information in society. But looking at Turkey, we can definitely say that we do not have a healthy flow of information. One of the latest examples of this situation came from a shocking resignation of Treasury and Finance Minister Berat Albayrak, who at the same time you know, is son of law of uh, President Erdogan. Last week, he just resigned from his position, declaring his own personal Instagram account. So, you know, normally this event would attract a great deal of media attention and, you know, should be given as breaking news, shocking news. But this was almost hidden from the public for 17 hours. So for nearly one day, the big majority of the media did not even mention about it. There wasn't any official press release or announcement made by the government in 27 hours either. So people could hear this news only from social media and especially from the people who were, you know, the friend of president in his Instagram account. So, yeah, we don't have a healthy flow of information. And the second democratic function of media is providing a forum for public discussion, which means providing a public sphere where these diverse, often conflicting views can be expressed and discussed. But as a result of authoritarian repression control over media and the public, of course, we also lost 
are platforms for national debates as different voices and perspectives cannot find a place for themselves at media anymore. As I mentioned, nearly 95% of the media looks like a part of the same monologue in Turkey. It's not a surprising thing to see nearly the same headlines at nearly all newspapers. There is more ironic examples of this situation in TVs. You know, for example, you can witness a TV debate where a couple of male experts discussing women's rights and feminism. Or the same man discussing on a specific party's politics without a representative from that party. It's obvious that this also means, I think, a danger of losing our ties that makes us a society with all our diversity, plurality, and even conflicts. So it's really dangerous, I think, one of the most dangerous results of losing a healthy media system in a country. And if you know, we look at the third main function of media, that being the fourth estate and watching the government on behalf of people, we can clearly say that investigative journalism became a matter of heroism in Turkey. As journalists who still try to make investigative journalism faced with numerous law cases, high fines, or even prison sentences, I really want to mention one of the latest examples of this situation, which is the arrestment of four journalists who made news about two Kurdish villagers who were tortured, lynched, and probably thrown out of a helicopter by soldiers in the eastern part of Turkey. One of the villagers lost his life at the hospital. The other could survive after hospitalizing for weeks. And only a very small part of the media mentioned about this issue. And as I have mentioned, the journalists who made public this incident was arrested. So I think we can see the same pattern for universities too. Without further elaboration, I can say that Universities are also under great pressure, like media in Turkey. Both academicians and students are in fear, making censorship, which is very common in every part of academic work, like lectures, research, papers. And I think universities become more detached from the urgent problems of Turkey, unfortunately. With censorship, you mean self-censorship yes. that you... Both censorship. And self-censorship. So you think twice about what you study, what you write, yeah. and so on. That is, of course, very dangerous if you don't even do things any longer because you're afraid that that might have consequences. You, I think universities are in a position of being paralyzed with the fear of any kind of pressure, being dismissed, being even sentenced, not having your promotion having law cases against you, etc. Yes, and now we're actually touching on some of the results of your recent report, which is called A Report on Academic Freedoms in Turkey in the Period of the State of Emergency. And the main aim of this report was to determine the extent to which academic freedom and autonomy has been violated during the state of emergency period following the military coup attempt in 2016. Can you tell us a little bit more about this report? After the coup attempt of 2016, there was a national state of emergency call all around Turkey, and it took two years. So during this period, government used different measures against oppositional political views. One of the most important measures used by government on universities was the destruction of job security of civil servants, including academic staff working at the universities. So during this state of emergency period, nearly one of the seven academics at Turkey's universities either dismissed from public service, lost their jobs, or experienced an unprecedented level of, you know, insecurity in terms of their jobs. So being afraid of dismissal or other forms of pressure from the administrators at the universities were common among the rest of the academics. So this feeling was particularly common 
among dissident academics. Grounded with these observations, we conducted a large-scale survey and in-depth interview with 331 academics and 90 graduate students in the fields of social and educational sciences and humanities in 54 universities located in 13 different provinces and seven different regions of Turkey. So this was part of a European Union research fund. So our study shows that the, you know, as I already mentioned, self-censorship is very common among academics and it's spread across every domain of the academic life, like, you know, lectures, research, publications, and academic events such as conferences. So all these areas is covered by strong self-censorship, unfortunately. Many academics feel that they are obliged to practice self-censorship in all kinds of academic activities. So research subjects that are or might be in conflict with the dominant political and ideological frameworks could only be carried out with reservations and encountered with various pressures. So this academic climate leads to a narrowing of academic interest and the increase of publications that deal with these same insignificant and technical issues. So, you know, young researchers also practice self-censorship, unfortunately, in selecting their topic for their dissertations or in writing the, their thesis. One form of result of such self-censorship is changing the topic or maybe the subject of their studies because of the pressure they felt. So our, our academic broad is closing more and more, you know, like being a monologue, like our media sphere. And it's really dangerous if you, if you talk about science. And it's not only the self-censorship. Apart from it, many academics are facing with restrictions on their research activities and projects. And these restrictions or barriers are coming from the administrators for political and ideological reasons. Academic freedom to teach is also under great pressure. Student denunciations about the lecturers became widespread. Just before and after the state of emergency period, it really looks like some Germany of Nazis term, unfortunately. So it might be said that these denunciations are one of the primary obstacles to the freedom of lecturing, you know, Academics feel not free in classrooms because they are afraid of their students. Our research also revealed that many academics who study some various taboo topics with a critical perspective have concerns about possible sections. So what are these taboo issues? You know, they might be Armenian question, the Kurdish problem, ethnic identities, sexual identities, religion, criticism of government. Academics who study these issues with a critical perspective have unfortunately concerns of being reported even by their students or their colleagues. Imagine such a work environment. Another important finding of the research is the insecure environment and isolation created by widespread practice of denunciation, investigations, and dismissals. So academics stated that they could not trust neither their colleagues nor their students. So they became more and more isolated. And one interesting result was about how academics use social media there are many studies, you know, showing that social media in Turkey has been a strong alternative to national media sphere. So due to the uh, pro-government monopolization of media, social media became more and more important. But we have observed in our studies that academics feel uneasy and under pressure to share their posts on social media. So many of them stated that they just closed their accounts. The state of emergency period created room for the unionization of academics. You know, academics who were members of opponent-owned unions were urged by administrators to leave, to resign from their unions. So trade unionism is under pressure too. 
autonomy is lost its power at universities too, and academics are exposed to right violations due to their political views, sexual, ethnic, and religious identities. Academics define their situation as culture of fear, climate of fear, fear regime, atmosphere of fear, empire of fear, wave of fear during the state of emergency. So maybe this is the most, you know, easy way to depict it, fear. Finally, I can say that the participants were observed to agree on the fact that the damage caused by the state of emergency could not be compensated for many years. And they, they were pessimistic about the future of the university and the country. You get censored and also self-censor, but what can you actually do in this state that you have now? Can you do something in Turkey? Yeah, we still have decent voices. We still have academics who are still, you know, doing researches, raising their voices, having troubles because of this. But the thing is, if being critical, if rising voice for democracy turns up something like of heroism, you cannot do much things. We should find more, more organized ways of being united, organized and in solidarity with each other both nationally and internationally, is something really crucial to cope with authoritarian regimes. You see this kind of development that you describe in Turkey in a lot of other countries also, both in Europe, Hungary, Poland. You also see some worrying tendencies in, in Russia and even the United States, you can question quite a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And even here in Sweden, some political parties have raised their voices about certain disciplines and then would like to have more influence on academia. If you see it all like an ecosystem, like politics, academia, media, how can there be an, a healthy ecosystem mm -hmm. where we, we come closer to the truth, so to say, and to knowledge? I think universities are in a very fragile position all around the world. As the neoliberal policies on universities, you know, resulted with the precarization of academics, making them more vulnerable against the demands of research funders and governments. Besides this rising authoritarian and populist politicians spread an anti-intellectual, you know, anti-intellectualism in even democratic Western societies, as you already mentioned. So I think, you know, it's really an important thing to being more organized in unions and being in solidarity with each other, as I mentioned. It's also, you know, time for universities to turn their emergency mode on against authoritarianism, like what media did, some part of media did in USA. Both media and universities should try to find, you know, other ways of doing their job, reaching people in more direct, direct ways. So maybe media and universities collaborate each other to spread, I think, the independent, critical, multi-perspective view of science in a way. So yeah, maybe universities should give more importance to their relations with public, with societies, and, you know, defend, resist, and unite or against both economic and political oppressions to their independence. And I think it's really important both science and media should have a democratic autonomy against politics and also society. Maybe it's, again, time to think about the autonomy of universities. Maybe being autonomy became more and more important these days. Maybe it's also important to talk about the role of citizens in democratic systems to have a healthy ecosystem. I think it's the most important part maybe, you know, because we are citizens as academics, as journalists too, in the end. So maybe when we look at authoritarian regimes or countries in which democracies are in a more authoritarian turn, 
we observe increasing polarization of societies, I think, which results with more and more echo cham chambers where each part only can hear the same perspectives of their own, which also results with the elimination of a healthy deliberation, and which is, I think, at the core of democracies. So although it's not easy every time, we should, as citizens, try to be more open to other perspectives. And we should accept the diversity in the end. Yeah, you know, one of the latest striking examples is the debate on universities in France nowadays. After an unacceptable and brutal terrorist attacks on freedom of expression in recent weeks, France democracy, I think, is giving a tough test. There is already an attack to universities, both from politicians and unfortunately from some parts of academics, with demands to eliminate some perspectives from universities. So it's really dangerous. We should be aware of it as citizens. And sometimes even we don't accept that perspectives. We should respect them. We should respect to every peaceful, democratic perspective and to do scientific interrogation on this, to think about it, to talk about it. So we should be more open to hear some even disturbing voices. It's not something, you know, fighting against, against terrorism, but the danger is generally fighting against terrorism comes with other things too, those things are generally cut our democratic values. You know, I am now talking to you as a person which is accused of being, you know, terrorist by signing a petition. If we lost ourselves as citizens in this rising opposition, in oppositional parts, so if we, if we became blind to other perspectives, I'm sure that it will hurt ourselves in the end. So, yeah, I think the key to a healthy democracy is being more multicultural, diversive, ready to hear each other society, being a society like that. Yeah, I think that's very important what you said, that we have to listen. We have to listen to each other and also to different opinions than our own even if it's disturbing. So you have mentioned the situation in France and that academics are under threat there. Maybe just to put this into context, what is happening in France right now? There is a vivid debate on academic freedom in France nowadays. After the Islamist terrorist attacks in October, unfortunately, government accused universities and academics for being Islamo-Gauchist and being responsible for conditioning the violent Islamist extremists by importing some ideologies from North America. The Conference of University Presidents of France rejected these accusations with a press release. In this release, and this is important, I think, they emphasized that research is not responsible for the ills of society, but it analyzes them. And the university is, in a sense, a place of debate and construction of critical thinking. But anyway, the French Senate approved a research programming law, which, apart from organizing the academic life with a neoliberal perspective, it also limits the scope of academic research with respect for the values of the republic. Meanwhile, academics who were critical about this law were being threatened by far right. Eric Fesson, a critical academic, declared that he was receiving death threats via Twitter and that the government's accusations to universities causes such a dangerous environment for critical academics. I'm not a specialist on France, and I do not know the context of France in every detail, but according to my own experience as a peace academic from Turkey, the situation resembles pretty much with our case. Our experience showed that the attacks on universities and the accusations 
that associate universities and academics with terrorism do not end well for society, that the restrictions of scientific researchers with political concerns ultimately hinders the critical thinking and a healthy democratic public sphere of a society. Eric Fesson himself actually also makes this observation in one of his papers and says that, paradoxically, the Republican France of Emmanuel Macron looks more and more like to the Islamist Turkey of Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He warns French society against the risks of suppressing academic freedom. And I think maybe we should think more on the words of Andrew Sterling, European media director of Human Rights Watch, when he says, the most dangerous delusion is it can't be happen here. Unfortunately, this kind of regression from democracy can happen everywhere. And as academics, as citizens, individuals, we should always be in alarm this regression and we should always be ready to demand our democratic rights. Well, thank you for sharing. I think this is very important that we who live in a relatively safe academic setting still get to hear about this, get aware of problems and what we can do about it. So thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and good luck with your research here at SCAS. Thank you for inviting me here and thank you for giving that opportunity to talk about these issues and thank you for being ready to listen to me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you want to share it with your colleagues and friends. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us to make sure not to miss any new content. This was the second episode of SCAS Talks about diversity. And maybe you would also like to listen to the episode with the title In Search for Light in Dark Times with Elise Waterston, Professor in Cultural Anthropology at the City University of New York. In the coming episodes, we continue with our two current themes, language and diversity. We hope that you want to join us then as well. Bye for now. Okay.